right there. Right. Do we have a do we have a start we want to do? Um, ba, 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 ba. Okay, Wait, I, I got something we can do. I don't have anything funny about Black History Month if that's what you're. I got some, for. something we can do. Okay, is it gonna make right. me feel awkward again? No. Okay. Okay. I mean, Let's it go. can if you want, but. No. <laughs> okay. All right, Miss Rallage. Down to business. No chit chat. No nonsense. Teenage stories. That's child's play. We're we're officially at episode fifteen. We are a grown-up podcast for grown-ups now. <laughs> yeah. We're going to use words that are long <laughs> and complicated, like extricate and brobdignagian. Didn't know that last one, Mr. Linden. It's from Gulliver's Travels, and it means very large. And <laughs> okay. don't use it in conversation because people will look at you like you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Mr. Linden, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Ms. Rattledge? Doing great. I'm cutting off your chit-chat. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've fallen into my own trap. Um, we're talking about Black History Month stuff today. It's uh, our Black History Month spectacular. Um, and uh, why don't we just get right down to it, shall we? I think that sounds great. Yeah, it's the month of February, halfway through the month of February. The we Ides of February. The Ides of February. Well, wasn't that yesterday? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's an Ides. If it is Ides just halfway through the month? I, I, yeah, I, I always think of it as the 15th. Then it'd be the 14th if it's um, that's true. just February. It's yeah. yeah. Well, we, do, we, did, I did, we didn't do this on purpose, but we did do the 14th episode about, the, about Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. The 14th of February. So, so yes, we are talking about Black History Month. Um, today. And Mr. Linden, I thought it would be helpful if you just could just walk our listeners through why is Black History Month in the month of February? And why is this a thing that the United States um, celebrates? I would be happy to do that after I say this. Hello and welcome to Historically Speaking with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Miss Ratledge. Where we talk about the history behind the stories in this week's news and never forget to do the intro. Um, so uh, talking a little bit about Black History Month and why it happened, um, it really starts with a guy named Carter Woodson, um, who is a really interesting figure, uh, who in the 1920s or so um, started seeing that there was a real appetite in America um, especially among black folks to look at the history of, of black people and, and that a lot of the museums and exhibits and schools and things like that were teaching a history that didn't include black people. It didn't put them, it certainly didn't put them front and center, but in some cases just completely omitted them. And the few places where they did, you know, there was some, uh, a few ex expositions around that time. I was going to say expeditions. There might have been some expeditions too, but uh, there were some expositions at the time. Uh, that actually focused on, you know, black life in the South, and, you know, people migrated from all over to come, uh, to come see these exhibits. They, the arenas in which they were, they were brought and the buildings were totally overflowed by it. And he was saying, like, hey, there's this amazing appetite for black history. So he, uh, working together with the fraternity he was part of in college, popularized the idea of, of like, a black history week. And for a long time, that was the 
the center of it. It was a week. And it was intended to encompass the birthdays of uh, Abraham Lincoln and of Frederick Douglass, right? Two central figures to the emancipation struggle. Um, but Woodson, interestingly, was always very clear on the fact that he did not want it, despite the fact that there were celebrations of those two individuals, for it to be about individuals. He was very strong in his opinion that history was written by people, not by single people, right? By people in the collective. Um, so there had always been, since you know Lincoln's uh, assassination, there had been celebrations around his birthday. There had also been some celebrations around Frederick Douglass's birthday, particularly in the black community for both of those. And so he sort of built on the success of those to create Black History Week. Um, and eventually, after he, uh, he passed away and its popularity grew and grew, until in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, the idea of a whole month for, for black history um, gathered steam until I, I believe it was 1976. It was formally uh, instituted, the bicentennial year. Um, it was instituted as, uh, you know, endorsed as a, a formal theme for the month. And, and you know, as, as many people before me have pointed out, uh, including a student in one of my classes, uh, very, very adroitly put it recently, um, it is about studying black history, especially that month. Not only that month, just especially that mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, uh, I appreciate the student who, who voiced that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things too where um, I've had many students ask me some, a similar type of question and I think the response is of course, yes, studying black history, especially that month, but always. But I think it's also important to note that there is a reason why um, why we have to, what I call, kind of have focused history. In other words, like, mm. the te so frequently textbooks in America, particularly prior to the 1960s, you know, were predominantly, the way that just quickly how a textbook is written, it's, you know, it's written by essentially uh, a group of authors who have it published um, but it really is written in line with whatever the state ed the board of education what their um, kind of requirements are which have traditionally always been um, filled with people that were white in other words the state board of education in most states up until probably the past 20 or 30 years has been predominantly white people that have been in charge of those state requirements and so so frequently schools I mean even within my own education um, and I'm not that old I am I am older than you but I'm not that that's old true. Um, that's true been, I'm, I mean to be fair I'm I'm you know I'm almost double digits so. <laughs> no. like barely out of high school I'm just kidding that's not true listeners that is not true Mr. Linden. Hey, I am double. I am almost double digits, but I also have been double digits for like many years. <laughs> for a while. So, yeah. um, but the point is, is that like it's been so, it's so white dominant. I mean, the history textbooks are so white dominant, and so I think what part of the thing that Woodson was trying to push back against was to say that you know um, that we need to focus not just on Black history, but we also need to focus on the fact that Black history is American history. In other words, they are mm. inextricable, right? You know, there there's no separation between the two, and so frequently the narrative that is told is told through a white lens. When 
if you were white in America and you were black in America in, you know, the 1700s or the 1800s or 1900s, your lived experience was so dramatically different that it requires a focused history on those two different things. And of yeah. course, and, you know, and since the 1970s, we've also had things like now we have a Hispanic Heritage Month, we have a Native American Heritage Month, we have Women's History Month, again, to give some credence to... We have a shared history, but we also all have very different experiences, and it requires a focus on that a little bit. So, absolutely. So, with that in mind, we thought that this today, though Woodson did say we shouldn't only be focused on individuals, um, we are not going to try and <laughs> do the impossible and talk through Black history in the next twenty minutes, all of it. So, we did think that we would, we would, we wanted to, we selected a few folks that we wanted to highlight um, as people that perhaps you may know about, you loyal listeners may know know about, but not know much about, um, and we want to take this opportunity to do that. So. Mr. Yeah. Lennon, do you did you want to go first with? Why don't we alternate? Uh-huh. I'll do one, you do one, I'll do one. Sounds you great. Do one. How's that sound? Yeah. That sounds great. All right. So my first person that I wanted to talk about um, is uh, a, a figure who folks may be familiar with, but uh, may not be as familiar as I think they should be, um, which is a, a figure named George Washington Carver. Um, now. Most people who know one thing about George Washington Carver, uh, well, I'll, I'll ask Miss Rallage, what's, what's the thing that you know about George Washington Carver, if, if there is a thing you know about George Washington Carver? Peanuts? Peanuts, exactly. Uh, people know that he is associated with peanuts. A lot of the time he is credited with having invented peanut butter. Um, and there is some peanut stuff, right? He did he did have a lot of connections with peanuts, but it was less about uh, specifically that plant and more about what he did generally for the outlook of black people. Because he grew up uh, in the South, uh, but moved up to Iowa State University um, for his college education, the first land-grant university in the country. So they taught things that weren't just traditional university academics. They, they also taught things like agriculture. Um, and he studied botany, he studied uh, s- sort of like soil chemistry kinds of things. He studied all sorts of things having to do with the natural world. And he went back south to, uh, to try to help people, right? And the, the story is that he, he took the train and saw just fields and fields and fields of cotton and, you know, was despairing because what he had learned, what he, what he knew, that cotton was very rough on the soil. And so he started trying to introduce uh, some reforms, things like, uh, he was like, buy a second horse, then you can do deeper plowing, which brings up more nutrients. It's better than that. Um, and what he quickly realized was that the the black folks down south couldn't afford a second horse uh so he sort of came to this realization that his his he had been a little bit arrogant right is what i think he said about it that that his solution wasn't going to be quite right so what he started doing was finding cheaper ways for uh for black folks to farm and be self-sufficient and maintain their soil and this is where sort of the thing that i really want to drive home here is he spoke about things the way that like modern environmentalists do, right? That 
we have to be rotating crops. We have to be planting peanuts, which uh, are a nitrogen fixing plant. So they add nutrients back into the soil. We have to be uh, really knowledgeable about how we are treating the land so that it can be in the long term profitable for us, right? Even though cotton was the quickest way to make quick money, that wasn't what was going to sustain people in the long run. And he also uh, did all this sort of interesting chemistry and stuff. He had a whole lab set up. He was invited by Booker T. Washington to the Tuskegee Institute, one of the uh, you know great HBCUs in the country. Um, he educated a whole generation of young black men. His goal wasn't just to help people be more self-sustaining. It wasn't just to help people get out of poverty, but he saw this as a way of undermining the the dynamics of Jim Crow, um, that if people could uh, produce for themselves, if they could set themselves up for the long-term health of their land and property, that they would not be so reliant on uh, new fertilizers that they had to buy and go into debt to buy. They didn't have to buy the new equipment. They didn't have to buy more land. If they could make good use of the land that they had, they wouldn't have to go into debt to just keep up. Um, and so he, he was this amazing melding of science, of, of you know, social theory, of economics, of uh, humanitarianism, environmentalism, um, that the peanut butter story does not, does not give, uh, give credit yeah, to. Yeah, like, so where does the peanut butter story come from then? So one of the big things that he did was he put together a mobile education mobile, basically. Um, he put together this wagon with tons of little like sort of science kits and experiments and samples and plants and seeds. And he went all around the South educating people. It was like thousands of people per month giving these talks about like, here's how you can plant this and here's some samples to try it out. And this is a process that you can do to make this yield be more, uh, be larger or whatever it was. And he handed out a bunch of pamphlets, including this one that was 300 ways to prepare the peanut to basically say like, hey, plant these and use them, uh, they are useful. Like, so you should be planting them to revitalize your soil, but it's not just that you can use them for a ton of different. Um, Wait, but so I, remind I, me, when was George, uh, when was, what, what time yeah. period are we talking about? We are talking about, uh, he graduated in, from Iowa State in like the 1890s, something like that. So we're talking about like, right, actually right around mm -hmm. the same time that like, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's making the national parks mm -hmm. and stuff like that. That's mm -hmm. sort of era of the birth of environmentalism, the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's get a let's get one of one of yours. Why don't you uh, you share your first one? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, so I kind of took this. So we we Mr. Linden and I asked a question of each other, like who would you talk about if you could talk about two different people? And I actually, um, you know, I'm I'm just gonna take one person. It's not actually a person. It's a it's a group of people, um, and this mm -hmm. is probably just. Um, in response to what's going on in my own life right now, which is that um, my children went to school for the first time yesterday in 11 months. Um, Mazel tov. Is, <laughs> thank you, it's a really big deal. Um, but I have been, so I have a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, so they're in preschool, so they're able to go. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about kids in school and, um, and, it, and you know, just the experience of being a child and understanding your your place in the world, what makes you comfortable, what makes you uncomfortable, your peers. You know, my kids are really responsive to what their peers are doing, what they, how they respond to them, what they're wearing. You know, we're just we're, they're they're humans just like you and I are, right? So I've I really 
I, I wanted to give a massive shout out to those students at integrated schools. And I wanted to take a little bit of time to focus on that because it really, I think it's, it's something that I've always taught. Um, and that, you know, I think any good American history student has learned um, some basics about the school system in America um, and the segregation of it. And the basics are, you know, pre-Civil War, for the most part, blacks were not educated in any formal way, um, uh, though there were black schools and things like that. Post-Civil War, during the Reconstruction era, there were schools that were built all over the South for African Americans, um, and there were teachers, and there were kind of opportunities that were allowed. This was during the Reconstruction era when in many states around the South, there were actually, um, <clears throat> there were many uh, blacks that held office. There was a governor of Louisiana, the first black African-American governor, was a governor of Louisiana in the 1870s. Um, but as the North pulls out of the South um, and things kind of fall apart in terms of Reconstruction, you start seeing a, a return to not slavery, but something almost as bad, um, which yeah. is kind of the Jim Crow era. And so you have schools that are, are are segregated, if they even exist at all. Um, and that happens not just in the South, but it's actually all over the North as well. I think that's a that's yeah. a myth. Frequently people think that the North was so integrated or that it was much more equal, but it, it actually wasn't. There was just as yeah. many segregated schools. Um, and so it's and, not until the 1950s. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and I'll, I'll just add that a lot of places are still de facto segregated, even if they're oh, not yeah. legally. Yeah. Uh, segregated, especially in some northern cities. But yes. sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. They're without a doubt still de facto. Um, so it's not until the 1950s that the famous court case, if not the most, one of the most famous Supreme Court cases, Brown versus Board of Education, um, is the ruling is upheld by the Supreme Court that it is unconstitutional for court or for schools to be segregated. So this gets me to my first, the first person that I wanted to talk about. And it's not really, it's actually not so much. The, the, the student, her name was Linda Brown. Um, mm -hmm. She just passed away, actually, I think a couple of years, two, three years ago, perhaps. Um, but she was a student. She was, um, she had lived in a town in Topeka, Kansas, where she lived really close to the all-white school. Um, and she was not able to go there. And said so she had to walk several miles with her father to another school. And, um, and so her father actually worked with the NAACP to try and get um, this overturned. And uh, Linda Brown uh, and was amongst, I think it was 16 or 17 other plaintiffs that were a part of this court case that ultimately desegregate or says that it is unconstitutional to not necessarily desegregate. Um, okay. But though her namesake was used, Linda Brown actually was never integrated into that school she by the time that the oh, court case went through that. she had graduated um okay. so not to not to discredit i mean what her family went through and what her father went through mm -hmm. um to kind of push that forward but she wasn't one of the people that had to physically integrate um but the folks that i wanted to kind of think about a little bit more um there was a there was a picture a painting when i was a kid that i saw that i i never really understood actually it's called the problem we all live with it's a Norman Rockwell painting, and it mm -hmm. is, um, it's like a, 
It's like you can see the full picture of a little girl, a, a black girl mm-hmm. in a white dress, and then you can see kind of the half bodies of these four men. And there's two in front of her and then two behind her. And they seem and they have armbands on, so you don't really know what's going on. And then she's walking yeah. in between them. She's very beautifully dressed, um, walking with her head straight up. And um, it was a painting that was done in 1964 um, about a, a little girl named Ruby Bridges. Um, mm-hmm. And I think her story is the one that stands out so much to me. Just the the enormous strength that it took for people to integrate schools. Because though the cons- though the Supreme Court said it is unconstitutional to be segregated, the reality, like the, the what happened on the ground, mm-hmm. required that then people actually experiment with their own lives and with their own children to see if they could integrate a school. No one was actually going to do it. Like, the government did not forcibly, not until much later, at least, did they forcibly integrate schools. It actually was up to individual families to say, okay, well, I would like to go to this school and therefore I'm going to put my neck out and I'm going to, you know, talk to my child and I'm going to essentially test and try and, and go to the school, which is precise, precisely what happened with the Bridges family. Um, Ruby Bridges was six. Um, they lived in New Orleans. The judge had passed a, a kind of a junction saying that schools had to allow black students to, to come, but they didn't have to Again, they didn't have to like mandate it or anything. So you had to apply, 137 students apply, only five were accepted, and then something like three actually did it. And one of them was this little girl. You know, the first day that she went to school, there were people that were outside yelling, you know, chanting, like two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate, type th- things like that, you know, yelling or whatever. That's probably on the nicer side of the things that were Probably on the nicer sides of things that were happening, right? The big, the big thing for me, I think, when I think about the story, is, is that when she finally did enter the school, um, everyone had left. And she mm. went to kindergarten by herself all year long oh, wow. with this one teacher. Um, and yet, it's so remarkable to me because a person like that, she didn't actually, she, neither she nor her parents gave up on it. In other words, like, I just think about, like, what kind of bravery it would have taken what kind of bravery I would have to have to take my five-year-old and send him to a school that that I knew that he was not wanted at for him to keep going, right? Um, yeah. And then an amazing thing about it is, is that the following, so she did, so she finished her year, she went to school all year by herself. There were something like 500 kids that walked out on the first day and every all the kindergartners left um, and they went to a different school. This was at the same time where schools all or you know towns and cities all over the south were opening up private schools so they wouldn't have yeah. to integrate and white students could go there um but the following year there were something like seven or eight black students that were in her class and so in her case it was a case where you know it actually was successful to some extent yeah. and it worked um i mean i'm not sure what the school looks like today but it is it just is one of those moments where i'm like those are the small little stories that we don't even think about. We just think that like integration yeah. happened, but we forget about the fact that it actually was the like individual people's lives that were truly impacted.
We're, we're going a little bit long, I think, so, so I'll just do a, a quick little wrap-up here on my, uh, my final person, um, if that's all right to transition away. I think that was an awesome, awesome pick, uh, Ms. Riley. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Ida B. Wells, or Ida Wells Barnett, um, who uh, is another person who I think is just so cool. Um, the best Ida. Well, Ida Tarbell is so cool too. One of the one best of the best Idas. Idas. Um, and then there's of course we had a big argument. We have we've had an argument about this. Oh, interesting. Before, which is the best interesting. Ida. Yeah. Um, I vote for or Ida French fries. No, uh, <laughs> I don't. I those are not that great. Um, but Ida, Tar- oh, not Ida Tarbell. Ida B. Wells um, was uh, an amazing woman. Um, in the sort of Gilded Era kind of time period. Um, So she was born in 1862. Uh, She was born uh, to a slave family. She was emancipated when she was very young. Um, And uh, she basically, uh, (laughs) she she started to go to college. She got into a fight with the president of the college and got expelled. it was not a, a promising start. Uh, I mean, she was involved in reconstruction uh, kinds of politics, but uh, while she was at college, before she came back, um, an epidemic hit her hometown of yellow fever, and it she lost her brother and both of her parents. So she's you know a recent college student, gets expelled, and then suddenly has to take on the burden of being the head of her family. And she started going after what she saw was one of the most serious issues, especially when a family friend of hers was uh, affected by it, which was uh, illegal lynchings. Um, And so she uh, became basically an investigative reporter, and she wrote these articles explaining you know, the supposed reasons for these lynchings that were given and how they weren't based in fact and how none of it followed, you know, judicial procedure or anything like that. And she was calling all these people out saying like, this is not, this is not legal. This needs to stop. And she came to great, you know, physical danger as a result of it. People in Memphis were so mad at her exposés that they like, attacked her house and she had to move. Um, She ended up moving to Chicago. Um, And uh, when she gets to Chicago, she's basically wherever she shows up, she's like, this thing's wrong, I'm gonna try to fix it. Um, So she gets there right around when the Columbian Exposition, the the huge Mm -hmm. like World's Fair Mm -hmm. was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And she basically said like, she noticed that they were actively excluding black participants, that a bunch of the exhibits at the the Columbian Exposition portrayed the black community in a really damaging negative way. And she started boycotting that and organizing with other local leaders to stop people from supporting that exposition. and uh, she also uh, was pushing for women's rights at the same time. She was also actively involved in the suffragette movement, but she would also you know, sort of get alienated there because she kept saying to all the suffragettes, like, yeah, you're focusing on suffrage, but you're ignoring the fact that uh, you, you won't speak out about black rights too. And you are ignoring things like lynchings. You're ignoring things that, like, black women, even if they get the vote, may not be able to access that. And so a lot of the suffragettes, uh, especially people who were, who were white suffragettes, sort of ostracized her. 
um, and didn't want to support her. And despite that, she kept pushing uh, to be part of that movement and kept pushing for that. She eventually becomes, uh, so she's not technically a founder of the NAACP, uh, Na uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Um, and, but uh, she is there at the Niagara Convention where they found it. Um, I'm not entirely sure why she doesn't get to be one of the founders, but she was certainly influential in it. And so up until, you know, she dies in the 1930s, that whole time she's basically just pointing out all these things that are wrong and actively working on it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I just think she's pretty amazing because she seems to be more or less entirely fearless from getting into an argument with the university president over something she thought was wrong to, you know, challenging lynch mobs to challenging other reformers who weren't doing well enough. Um, I think she's a real model for not just like journalism, but just being a person who lives by their morals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all while being up against the, you know, the, the double the double sword of racism and sexism. Um, Absolutely. Which, was, uh, which is which is why she was not part of the NAACP. Or why she wasn't part of the Oh, founding. is that why? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that makes sense. But I also think that she's, uh, to my knowledge, she's one of the only few journalists at that time, if the not the only one, that wrote about lynching. I think that all three of these groups of or these people these two people plus this group of people i think is to me exemplifies the importance of again what i call focused history yeah because so much of their story is associated with the quote-unquote stamp that was put on them mm -hmm. at birth by the color of their skin and is necessary to kind of talk about it through that lens um, and so I think as historians, that is one of the one of those pieces that's just so important to, you know, to bring to our students. Yeah. And how they used their their gifts to nurture that community um, and to to give back to the, the people who needed it most. Mm hmm. Yeah. Help them raise up. Um, all right. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Miss Rallage. Yes, this was a, this was a nice chat. All right, thank you bye, for listening. Bye, Miss Rallage. Bye.